Good morning. Uh, my name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC, and uh, we're so glad that you're here, especially if you're here for the first time. It's great to have you. This morning, uh, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2? And if you don't have, uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there is a blue Bible on the ground at the end of uh, the row of chairs, and you can follow along in Ephesians chapter 2 um, on page 976 there. 976. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So let me invite you to stand uh, with me as we hear God's word. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the serpent that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? God, I pray that you would quiet our hearts, still our minds, and fill us with your spirit, that we might understand more clearly your word, and that understanding your word, that we might know Jesus more fully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, this morning we are uh, wrapping up a series that we've been in for the last six weeks here on Sundays at Resurrection OC called, What's Your Story? And as we finish our series this morning, I simply want to remind you that God is good. That's really all I want to say, is, is God is good. God is good to you. God loves you. God is for you. We have a God who saves. And that's good news. But if you uh, were paying attention to this passage, you, you probably noticed it doesn't really start off with good news. It starts off with bad news. And the reason is because we have to understand uh, what we are being saved from in order to see that as good news. Um, if you're just sitting, you're on vacation on the beach, you know, and a helicopter comes and rescues you, that's not going to feel like good news, right? A couple of years ago, um, we were at, our family was at camp, and uh, we were waiting to go in to eat. And there was this stone wall that was maybe six or eight feet high, and uh, Ashley and I have four kids, and if this is not your first Sunday here with us, you've probably seen my kids climbing on something at some point. My kids climb all the time. And so we'd be sitting and waiting to go in, and my kids are climbing on this wall, and I'm sitting on a bench, like four feet away from my kids, 
climbing on this wall, and adults would come by and be like, oh, let me help you out there. Pick my kids up off the wall and set them down. Thinking that they're saving my kids, but yeah, I was, yeah, I was right there. I've seen my kids climb. They're fine. They're fine, right? So when God saves you, is he interrupting your fun, or is he being good to you? Um, over the last six weeks, we've asked this question, what's your story? And we're asking that question in an attempt to align our stories with God's story, because I believe that when uh, what, who God is and what he's doing in the world and his story, uh, if, when we align our lives to what God is doing and God's story, that's when life begins to take on meaning. And life is actually, we actually begin to live the abundant full life that Jesus uh, held out as a promise to his followers. And uh, we've been saying, what I've been saying in this series is that as a church, we are here, we want to help you move beyond busy and fine by helping you connect with God. And that's just particularly what we're trying to do in this series. And I can think of no better way to kind of wrap this series up than to look at what Ephesians 2 says, because this is just sort of an epic uh, an epic passage describing the, the goodness of God to his people. And it shows us what the Christian life looks like. And what I want you to see in this passage is, is this, that we have a God who saves. And because we have a God who saves, we have a God who is worth uh, celebrating. And we have a God who is worth responding to. So the first thing I want you to see is that we have a God who saves. Uh, many years ago, when, uh, when one of my boys was, was just a little guy, I think he was just two years old, um, one of the things we discovered, one of the first like, great parenting insights that Ashley and I had was, when you have little kids, buy them shoes they can put on themselves. Okay? That's just parenting genius. Write it down if you don't have little kids yet. Um, and so we, we got our, our two-year-old um, shoes, like sandals in the summer, he could put them on himself. Uh, but you know, little kids never get their shoes on the right feet, right? And so uh, my son would come up and we'd be, we'd be ready to I'd be, you know, hey, we're going to go play. Get your shoes on. We're going to go outside. And he would he'd come and put his sandals on. And, and I'd come and I'd look at him, look at his shoes. And I'd look up at him and I'd say, hey, buddy, your shoes are on the wrong feet. He would look down at his shoes. He would look up at me and he would say, actually, they are on the right feet. <laughs> and I would look at it and I'd say, work with me, please. <laughs> okay, if you want your shoes on the wrong feet, it's fine. But can you just acknowledge that they're on the wrong feet? And he would look down at his shoes, and he'd look up at me, and he would say, actually, they are on the right feet. <laughs> and why do I tell you that story? because it's adorable, um, but also because that's us. Uh, that's the way that we are living our lives. It's not just our shoes that are on backwards, but it's our lives that are on backwards. And we are convinced that we are doing it the right way. And when somebody says, hey, that's, you're doing it backwards, we say, actually, I'm doing it the right way. And the word the Bible uses for that is sin. Um, why do we need to be saved because of sin? We need to be saved because I am. We need to be saved because you are a sinner. Ephesians 2 verse 1, it says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Let me just acknowledge this is not the most popular thing that the Bible says. 
And yet it's crucial if you're going to understand what the Bible says about anything. And not just if you're going to intellectually understand what the Bible says, but if, if you're going to actually live uh, like day-to-day experientially out of a relationship with God and what he has done for you and experience his goodness in your life, this is the starting point. We have to come to terms with what the Bible says about who we really are. We think that um, in the culture that we live in, we think that uh, you know, if there's a problem, every problem can be probably solved with either education or just a little bit more effort. If there's a problem, if I just um, you know, if I like YouTube it, right? <laughs> there's a video for that, and then I'll know how to do it, and then I'll try hard, and I'll fix the problem. Well, you know what, like, if your kid has, um, like, if the appendix bursts, don't go to YouTube. <laughs> There's probably a video on how to remove an appendix on YouTube. I would suggest that you go to the doctor and remove the appendix, right? That's what we need to do with sin. You don't look, you don't look it up on, you know, learn it a little bit more, try a little bit harder. You need to have it removed. Um, have you ever dropped something, like sitting on the couch, Sitting on your couch, you drop something, it falls into the cushions in your couch. And you're like, ah, oh, what a pain. You gotta go hunt for it, and then you pull the, pull the cushions off, and you see what's really under there. <laughs> like, oh man, this is way worse than I, than I imagined. That's what, that's what sin, that's the picture of um, sin that the Bible presents. Uh, it's way worse than we imagined. We are not ignorant. We don't need to just try harder. We are sinners. Um, we are not sick, we are dead, we are disobedient. What I think that often looks like for us in South Orange County is this. We want to live beautiful, full, meaningful lives. We want to live lives that are full of meaning and full of the abundant life that Jesus promises. And yet so often, instead of the abundant life, we just settle for like the, uh, the, the stuff-filled life. That we think more is a, is a substitute for abundance. That more activity, more motion, and more stuff will cover up for a lack or substitute for abundance. And because those things don't satisfy, we distract ourselves with busyness and constant motion. And if we just keep going and going and going, then we won't actually have to deal with the reality of what's going on in our hearts. That's the problem. But then in verse of Ephesians 2, you see what are probably the two most precious words in the Bible. In Ephesians 4, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, first two words are, but God. But God. You were dead in your sin and trespasses, but God. I am so thankful that it says, but God, and it doesn't say, but you. Can you imagine? Um, you were dead in your sin. You were dead in your trespasses. But you can try. Well, I can't. I'm dead. Um, but God. We desperately need an intervention. Those two words should roll over us like a wave of relief. Um, uh, they should roll over us with... Uh, they should don- it should be like the dawning realization of things could have become been so much worse. Have you ever seen, um, a friend sent me a link to one of those like Russian dashboard cam videos this week? I don't know why these things are on the internet. Have you ever seen one of these? It's like thing after thing after thing of like narrow escapes. 
there's a guy walking down the sidewalk and you don't even know that he crosses a train track just casually walking down and it's you know if this is the edge of the train he gets about here and a train flies by like 80 miles an hour and you think oh my gosh <laughs> like that was really close <laughs> um, you know the guy just you know break like oh my I cannot believe I could have been a goner that's what we should feel when we read but God but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses he made us alive together with Christ by the grace of God you have been saved in Christ God has brought us back to life God has shown you grace he hasn't given you what you deserve. He's given you grace. Uh, John Stott, who was a um, well-known author and uh, pastor in London, um, he said, the essence of sin is substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. Grace is not getting... Um, let me say it like this. Grace isn't just God doing something nice for you. Um, grace isn't God just randomly doing you some kindness. Grace is God giving you not just what you don't deserve, but it's God giving you the opposite of what you deserve. It's God substituting himself for you. It's God dying for you because you're a sinner, because you were dead in your sin and trespasses. And so that's what, that's what the cross is about. Why is God on the cross? Why is Jesus dying on the cross? Because that's what we deserve. Because we were dead in our sin and in our trespasses. And so Jesus goes to the cross because he takes what we deserve. And instead it says that he seats us. We are now seated with God. We're seated in the place of honor at the right hand of God. We are raised with Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are no longer dead in your sin, but you are alive in Christ. And you are the object of God's love and God's affection. That's grace. It isn't just, you know, God doing something nice for you. It's God giving you the opposite of what you deserve. I have a, um, a friend who a little while back was in a car accident. Um, incredibly tragic circumstances. He was driving a car. And uh, his, his car, um, he took his eyes off the road and hit a pedestrian, killed a pedestrian. And um, you can imagine the guilt and the shame, and he just kind of withdrew from life, shut everything, went dark. And the man who died, my friend, my friend is a pastor, and the man who died, his family invited this pastor to officiate at this man's funeral. And that's grace, right? He doesn't deserve to be there. And that's a picture of this family's grace to this man. But it's, it, it's even more than that, a picture of the grace of God to you. Because you are not culpable... Um, just accidentally for the death of God's son. But the, what the Bible would, would lead us to believe is that every one of us is willfully, actively um, responsible for the death of Jesus. 
that in our rebellion, in our kicking against God, in our sin, in our pushing back against what God has said is good for us, that we are willfully culpable of the death of Jesus. And God doesn't give you what you deserve. He gives you grace. Instead of giving you what you deserve, he gives Jesus what you deserve so that God will never give you what you deserve. He will give you his love and his favor and his affection. That's grace. It's the opposite of what you deserve. You have a God who saves. Do you know that? That's the good news of this passage. You have a God who saves. You don't have a God who is just mildly indifferent to you. You don't have a God who is randomly kind to you. You have a God who is gracious to you. You have a God who saves you when you were dead. That's good news. You have a God who saves. Well, if that's true, and if that's true of what, who God is and what he has done for us, then how should we respond? And the second thing I want you to see in this passage is this, that because you have a God who saves, uh, we, because we have a God who saves, we are monuments of God's grace. We're monuments of God's grace. Um, have you ever seen a monument? Have you ever been to Washington, D.C. and seen the monuments? Or uh, a few years ago, our family went to Mount Rushmore. And, um, you know, a monument is something that's a, it's a physical structure. And Mount Rushmore is, is an impressive, you know, uh, thing. But it's even more impressive because of what it, what it is a, um, you know, a sign of. Or, um, you know, in Washington, D.C., it's filled with monuments, which are impressive structures. But what's really impressive, it, it more than the structure itself, is the thing that is behind it, right? Um, the Washington Monument is amazing because of who George Washington was. And what the Bible is saying here in, in Ephesians 2 is that you are a monument of God's work in the world. Verses 8 through 10 the Apostle Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. You are his workmanship. If you have been the recipient of his grace, you are the monument of it. You are the thing that he has made. And you are therefore a monument to his grace. You are, his, you are the result of his grace, which become, you then become a monument, a sign, a testament of his grace to others. Did you notice that in, in the, those words I just read, Paul talks about good works twice. He says, um, he says, you are not saved by good works, you are saved by grace. You're not saved by good works, but you're saved for good works. And what Paul is getting at here is, if that wave of realization has washed over you, um, the inevitable response is good works. You are not saved because of what you do, but grace will produce good works in your life. What does grace produce? It produces action. It produces gratitude. Uh, if we have received grace, we're not just going to stand by and casually um, receive it. In this series, what I've said over and over again is that I want to help you move beyond busy and fine by helping you connect with God. And we've spent four weeks talking about, okay, how do you actually connect with God? Um, what does a life look like where we are connecting with God? And I want to be clear that, uh, well, I've tried to lay out a simple plan of four steps to say, these are four steps to take to connect with God. 
And in no way am I saying this is what you must do in order to earn God's favor, in order for God to love you. Um, But what I'm trying to say, and what I've tried to say, is that if you are going to live day-to-day experientially uh, knowing that you are God's child, that God loves you, that he is for you, and if that reality is actually motivating your life, then there's a simple but not easy four-step plan. There are four things that you must absolutely do. This is the kind of life that God has called his people to live. It's a life where we're not just fine, where we don't wear busyness as a badge, that we honor and yet simultaneously loathe. Uh, This is what life looks like when we're connecting with God and living out of that relationship. Okay, four things. Let me just review briefly. First, you got to go to church. Um, I know, I know I'm a pastor standing here saying you got to go to church. Um, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. And yet there's just practically no way to live the Christian life without a real, tangible, vital relationship to a local body of believers. You cannot do it on your own. I was talking to somebody recently who was telling me that um, he's been on this medication for like four years, I think. And um, the, the prescription ran out. And the doctor, he called the doctor to get a refill on the prescription. The doctor said, uh, I want you to come in for a checkup before I fill your prescription. It took like three weeks to get an appointment on the calendar. And so for three weeks, he was out this, without this medication. He said, you know, I've been taking this medication for years, and you get to the point where I don't even know if it does anything. I just take it regularly, and I, you know, everything seems fine. Said, and then I went three weeks without this medicine, and I felt like I was dying. You know, my chest hurts. I just feel awful. I felt like I was dying. I didn't realize how important this was until it was taken away. Connecting with God and his people is the mundane faithfulness that is essential to the Christian life. And so if you only have one like, time slot a week in your calendar to connect with God, you've got to clear 75 minutes on Sunday to go to church. And let me just say, if it's not here, that's fine, but go to church somewhere. If you're on vacation, you can go to church. When you're on vacation, it's, it's possible, right? If you're in, like, San Diego for a soccer tournament, there's a church in San Diego. You can go there. You've got to connect regularly with God's people in order to live out of a connection to God in the day-to-day of life. The second step is connect with other people. Connect with other people because change always happens in relationship. Um, Each of these four steps I preached a message on and so if you missed one you can go to our website and click on media and you can go back and listen to it but like I don't know a month ago I preached this message on relationships and connecting with people and um, the next day the Boston Globe published my sermon in the newspaper well actually it wasn't my sermon but it was like <laughs> it was like if you take the Jesus out of the sermon it was like that's exactly what they published in um I sent it to Jason. Jason's like, oh, now I get what you were trying to say. Um, but this was the headline. The headline was this. The biggest threat facing middle-aged men isn't smoking or obesity. It's loneliness. It's loneliness. Um, researchers are finding over and over again that in this world that we live in that has the promise of, of constant connection that we are actually more and more lonely and isolated than ever. And, uh, and studies keep coming out that say... You know, again, these are not Christians. These aren't people with a like a 
you know, an agenda trying to, trying to say you need to connect with people. They're just saying that uh, relationships are the key to living a healthy and happy life. And um, that a lack of relationships shortens your lifespan. And that the key to a happy and healthy life is having a dense relational network. A relationship of multiple friends, multiple uh, separate but overlapping social circles, people that you can rely on when you need help, but also people that you run into on a more regular, casual basis. Um, I've been thinking about this the last couple of weeks, and I've realized that I actually have a fairly dense um, social network, like a network of relationships. Um, I have people, I have probably hundreds of people that I'm in contact with on a regular basis, and it's because of my job. Um, and like, I'm an, I'm an introvert. I, um, like, I love alone time. <laughs> and yet, the, the nature of my job is such that I'm constantly reaching out to people. Like, I mean, you guys and other people and across the country, I have friends and, um, and you could say, well, easy for you to say, right? You, you have this like vocational interest in building relationships. But I think what that actually proves is that you need a structure in your life that will actually drive you towards relationships. That as much as we want to say that like relationships just grow organically, the only things that grow organically and without effort are like weeds and disease and the things that we don't want in our lives. We need a structure that will actually drive us towards community and, and, and cause us to build relationships if we're going to have the dense social network that both the Bible and secular researchers say is essential to happiness and health as a human being. So join a community group and commit to it and go even when it's not convenient. The third step is serve. Live for something beyond yourself. A life that is curved in on itself, where my primary concern is me and my happiness and my satisfaction and what do I want and how can I live a more comfortable, easy life is the most surefire way to um, depression and discouragement and frustration with what you have. So live for something beyond yourself. A life lived in service to others will not be easy, but it will be joyful. In the mid-90s, Vedran, I think it's uh, Vedran Smolovic, he's known as the cellist of Sarajevo. And during the siege of Sarajevo in the mid-90s, one day he took his cello and he got dressed up in his, um, he was the first chair of the Sarajevo Orchestra, he got dressed in his finest and took his chair and his cello and went and sat in a bomb crater in Sarajevo and began to play beautiful music on his cello. And he went and sat in this bomb crater because the day before there had been a cafe standing in the place where that bomb crater was. And a bomb had hit that cafe and killed 22 of his friends and neighbors. And this was his response to say, I cannot stand, I cannot live in a, in, a, in a city, in a country that is riddled with war, that is overcome by ugliness and do nothing. And this was his gift. This was his calling, uh, but this was his gift. And so he began to play at funerals and he would go into bombed out buildings and he would play these solo uh, cello concerts, bringing beauty into the midst of ugliness. 
And you know, if you're a Christian, that's your calling too. That's who we are. You don't need me to stand here to tell you that we live in a really messed up world. That we live in a world that is dark, that is ugly, and that oftentimes looks like a bombed out war zone, metaphorically, if not physically. And this is who we are. God has called us to go into those places of brokenness and ugliness and darkness and serve and bring beauty and make music and give others a reason to celebrate. God is calling us to bring beauty into this world by living a life of service to others. So that's the third step. And then the fourth step, if you're going to get beyond busy and find and connect with God, is you've got to give. And I'm not going to, you know, <coughs> preach a whole sermon I'm giving. I did that last week, and if you missed it, you can go online and listen to it. I suspect you might not if you missed it, but, uh, you know, it's up to you. <laughs> but why do you need to give? Because you've got to put your treasure where your heart is. And if you are um, regularly involved in the life of a church, and if you're connecting with other believers and unbelievers, and if you're serving, then you are connecting with God, and your life is moving beyond busy and fine, and you're going to want to put your treasure, invest your treasure where your heart already is. So, where do we go from here? <laughs> it's a simple plan, but it won't be easy. And I think the call to us as we finish this series um, is, is what are you going to do with it? You know, wh which of these four steps is maybe God laying on your heart and, and calling you to say, this is the thing that I need to, this is the next step of faith that God is calling me to commit to. I want to challenge you to think about, you know, going to church regularly, making a, a priority, connecting with other believers, serving or giving. You know, there are more things that the Bible says that we can and, and, and ought to do. Uh, if God's grace has changed us, I think most of them will fit pretty well into one of those four categories. And so I want to challenge you to consider which of those four steps God is, 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 would lay on your heart and call you into. And then I want to encourage you to tell somebody. You don't have to tell me, you don't have to write it down. I mean, you can tell me if you want to. Um, because I just know myself well enough to know that I can make a decision and three weeks later I've done nothing about it. But if I tell my wife, you know, then I'm going to have to talk about it again. <laughs> In 2014, David Wise won an Olympic gold medal in a freestyle half-pipe skiing. And after he won, uh, NBC began referring to David Wise as a person who lives an alternative lifestyle. An alternative lifestyle, as defined by Wikipedia, is a lifestyle that is diverse in respect to mainstream lifestyles, or generally perceived to be outside of the cultural norm. Wikipedia says not all minority lifestyles are held to be alternative, but the term tends to imply newer forms of lifestyle often based on enlarged freedoms. Okay, so this skier wins a gold medal. NBC, in the follow-up coverage, starts saying, this, this guy is a member of an alternative lifestyle. And you have to ask yourself, you know, freestyle skiing, I mean, this is not like a buttoned-up sport. Um, you know, uh, freestyle skiers and mohawks have got facial, face piercings. I mean, this can be a pretty rough crowd. How, you know, what, what, what's this guy's alternative lifestyle? 
Um, is he polygamous? And was he like dwelling in a commune where they only eat raw food? Is he living off the grid and only uh, exchanging goods through the barter system? What's, what's so alternative about this lifestyle? Well, when he was interviewed after he won the medal, this is what he said. He said, I think my lifestyle, the fact that I have a little girl to take care of and a wife, really takes the pressure off my scheme because first and foremost, I have to be a good father and husband. NBC wrote a an article about him saying this. At only 23 years old, he has a wife, and together they have, two, they have a two-year-old daughter. At such a young age, Weiss has the lifestyle of an adult. He's 23. He has, the life, he has this, this alternative lifestyle is that he's married, he has a two-year-old, he wears his, like Josh Bastian this morning, wears his baby around the house and a baby Bjorn, and uh, he regularly goes to church. It's an alternative lifestyle. The guy's a Christian. Can you believe it? What about you? Are you a member of an alternative lifestyle? Because the reality is what God is calling his followers to is not the mainstream. We cannot simply look at like the direction, like kind of go with the flow of the Orange County lifestyle in 2017 and just say, I'm just going to float along with the current and I can just fit Jesus in kind of around and in between the rest of my priorities. It's an alternative lifestyle. Living as a Christian means making a decision to go against the flow. But this is who God calls us to be. This is the kind of life God has called his people to live. This is our story. This is who we are. So will you respond to God's grace as a monument of his grace and embrace the call of Jesus to follow him into this alternative way of living? It's not easy. It won't be peaceful all the time, but it will be joyful. We will not be living as simply, as simply like the victim of our circumstances, kind of being batted about, just being fine, everything's fine. We won't be the victim of our circumstances where everything is just busy, 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 and we've just got to keep going, going, going. But we'll be able to move beyond busy and fine because we are connecting with God. He is the source of life in this world, and he invites us to follow him. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for these words spoken to uh, your church, written to your church 2,000 years ago that still holds so much uh, truth and potency for us today. And Jesus, I, I thank you and I praise you that you haven't asked us um, to follow you into any sacrifice that is not good for us and any, into any sacrifice that you have not uh, already uh, jumped into yourself. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you don't give us what we deserve, but you give us what we don't deserve, that you call us sons and daughters. Would you help us to respond to your grace? Would you help us in Jesus' name? Amen.